I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and this is The Truth of the Matter. This is the podcast where we break down the policy issues of the day. Since the politicians are having their say, we will excuse them with respect and bring in the experts, many of them from CSIS, people who have been working these issues for years. No spin, no bombast, no finger pointing, just informed discussion. In today's episode of The Truth of the Matter, I'm flying solo as Bob Schieffer is out of town. To help us get to the truth of the matter about the events of the past week, the attack on the Capitol, we have with us ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl, one of the really adroit observers of Washington, someone who's reported on President Trump for the past four and a half, five years. John, you know, I I hate to start with a broad question, but the president seems very isolated right now. All reports indicate that he is isolated. How are you going about doing your job and trying to figure out what he's thinking, what his next move is going to be in this isolation? He's never been more alone, Andrew. I mean, he is in, in a White House that is that is as empty as it has ever been. It's, it's as empty as it has been since the day he became president. I, I described the scene in my book about being in the White House on January 20th before most of his staff was there. He had just gotten there. I was in front of the presidential limo on, on, on the parade route, and I got there at the same time he did. And it was it's such a weird, you know, the transitions are so strange anyway. Um, this one, it's a whole nother level of strange. Yeah. But a lot of the staff in the West Wing has left. So you, you know about the resignations that have happened, but that's only the tip of the iceberg. A lot of, a lot of his senior staff have simply packed up their, their desks and have moved out. Part of this is because, as you know, the departures, the White House go in waves, and some of those have already begun because you can't process everybody out on the last day. Each person leaving uh, the White House staff, it takes time. You have to be debriefed. You have to you know, turn over all your stuff. There's a process. You can't do them all at once. So, But some have left because they're frankly disgusted. Those that are still there, I spoke to one of the president's senior staff, very senior staff, who has been with him for a long time and is still there in a West Wing that is as empty as, as, as it has been, who told me that he has not seen the president since before Wednesday, because frankly, he didn't want to see the president. He's been avoiding him. Imagine that. And I hear that from the president's allies outside the White House, who quite a few have told me that they are avoiding him. They, they think that any conversation they would have would not be productive. So how do I do my job? I am able to talk to people that the president is speaking to, even, even through this. So I get some insight that way into what's going on. The one avenue that is completely and totally worthless is the uh, White House communications operation. You cannot get any insight whatsoever into what's happening by going to the people that are supposed to speak on behalf of the president. I've been, you know, just a kind of a side note here, I've been trying to get an answer for a few days as to whether or not the president condemns the chance of hang Mike Pence that we've been hearing. You know, heard on Wednesday and the threats that we've seen to Pence's life both before Wednesday and, and since. 
And I got some, finally got some milk toast statement out of White House comms that said, we condemn all violence against all administration officials, you know? Right. <laughs> all lives matter, including Mike Pence's, I guess. Yeah. How, how about the lives of Republican members of Congress who are now being threatened as well? Are they concerned with those? Yeah. I mean, and it's going to be very interesting because as this impeachment goes through, and I think that there's a healthy debate to be had whether or not this is the right move. But as it goes forward, you are going to have Republicans that are going to support impeaching him, unlike last time around. You'll see you'll have Republicans in the House. It'll be a small number, but it could be as high as 15, I'm told. All eyes on Liz Cheney and what she does. Uh, that could be an indicator. But the pressure that'll be on any of those members, I can't even begin to imagine. And then in the Senate, where the threats are already real on, you know, I mean, because you've had, you've had a number of senators come out in very stark terms and condemn this president even before Wednesday, Republican senators, you know, McConnell, Incense, Toomey, Sass, Murkowski. I'm told that assuming the House goes forward with the impeachment, which it looks like they will, that it's not inconceivable that when it comes to the vote in the Senate on conviction, that it could reach the threshold of 67 votes, two-thirds enough to convict him, which would mean at least 17 Republican senators voting to convict the president of high crimes and misdemeanors. I'm told don't rule that out. Don't rule that out. That's fascinating. I mean, it, what a sea change from just a week ago when you know, most of them were willing to just say enough is enough, certainly not thinking about impeachment. They, they have to think that they're truly done with him now. Yeah. And of course, part of that thinking is making sure that when January 20th comes and he leaves, that he stays gone, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, you know, obviously with impeachment, you can have that second vote that bars somebody from ever holding federal office again. Man, he did a secret ballot on that one. How many Republicans think would offer that? Right, right. Well, how hard does it make it for you and your colleagues to report on Trump when you don't have him on Twitter all day, when you're not hearing direct statements from him, when he's been quiet today, he's going to Texas to visit the border. So I'm assuming we're going to have sound from him. It'll be his first public appearance since the attack on the Capitol. But Without him on Twitter, without him on social media, which have been his primary platforms for communicating with the American people, what have you guys lost? Well, the Twitter platform and his tweets provided tremendous insights into his head because it was stream of consciousness at times. He just knew what was going on. We, you know, it wasn't always mostly a pretty picture. And that is a, that is something that does leave a void when he is off of all social media. He spoke to reporters on the South Lawn and again at Andrews before taking off to Texas. And it, I just want to share with you a couple of things he said. Yeah. One, he said that in previewing his trip, he said that the wall has been completed. So that's not the truth of that particular matter. Right. And then at Andrews, he was asked, uh, you know, if he bears some responsibility for what happened on Wednesday with his speech. And he said that people have looked at his speech and that it was perfectly fine. <laughs> he said, there's nothing wrong with it at all. It was a great speech. Oh my goodness. Have you talked to anybody who said that that was a, uh, that was a wonderful speech? I have not. 
<laughs> okay. So he, so he said, I'm, I, I just want to be sure that I'm quoting him accurately. So here's what he said. He says, people thought what I said was totally appropriate. And then he adds, they've analyzed my speech and my words and my final paragraph, my final sentence, and everybody to the T thought it was totally appropriate. So that's probably about as accurate as, as his statement that the wall has been completed. Yeah. Wow. It's not surprising, but it, it continues to be shocking, right? That's a great way of looking at it. And that, that was my reaction on Wednesday to the whole thing. It is shocking and completely unsurprising. Yeah. In fact, if you think about it, the only thing surprising, if you really look at it, is that something like this didn't happen earlier. Right. He's been saying things that look and sound and are incitement since before he won the election in 2016. This goes back to, you know, when it, when it rallies, he said, you know, he told people to rough up the protesters and he'll pay the legal bills. I mean, this goes back to a rally that I wrote about again in my book in Grand Rapids at the end of 2015, where he starts kind of joking about Vladimir Putin killing journalists. And then looks back at the end and says, now who would I know? Oh, no, no, I'm just kidding. But the enemy of the people stuff, you know, it's, it's, I had a conversation with him in the Oval Office in September of 2018. And this was after the shootings in El Paso and in Dayton. And I said to him, effectively, aren't you worried that people, that some sick person could take your words to heart? I think the meaning of what my question was was pretty obvious. And his words came back to me as I watched the riot ensue on Wednesday. He said to me, well, I hope they take my words to heart. Oh, my goodness. I hope people take my words to heart. And I don't think he meant that he hopes people go and start shooting things up, but he, but it's the total lack of awareness of what his, of what his words mean. Right. John, are, are you shocked that none of your colleagues, no journalist has been killed during this whole time. I mean, Trump started very early on by labeling reporters the enemy of the people, and he's kept up with this. And most of you have security everywhere you go when you're reporting. A lot of you have round-the-clock security because of serious threats you've received. And are you surprised that no one's gotten hurt or killed? It's sick and it's twisted and it's revolting that we have to have this conversation. But the honest answer is yes. I mean, the idea that for me to go and cover a Trump rally, I have to have a, I have to have security is crazy. Yeah. But it, I mean, it's true. Now that said, I want to be really crystal clear. I've been to countless Trump rallies since 2015. I mean, I, I honestly, I can't even give you an estimate because I've been to so many. I, I've interacted, talked to thousands of people who support Donald Trump. And the vast majority of those people would, would have nothing to do with the kind of thing that happened on Wednesday, mm -hmm. uh, would, would never threaten the violence on the journalist. Some of them actually have I remember one guy coming up to me at a, at, a, at a rally about a little over a year ago and actually said to me, you know, he doesn't really mean that stuff he says about you guys. It's just, you know, don't, I hope you don't, don't you know, don't take that seriously. Really mean it. <laughs> right. So, but, you know, look, it doesn't take many. I mean, actually it takes one. 
only takes one. So it it is it is frightening. And then you saw there's a lot more than one on Wednesday uh, uh, willing to commit violence in the cause of Trump to serve the cause of Trump. Yeah, and ABC reported last night that all 50 states are bracing for armed protests at their capitals, that there's going to be more armed protests coming to Washington for the inauguration. And where does this leave us right now in what we need to think about, you know, safety, what we need to think about in terms of, you know, going forward and governing because, you know, the incoming Biden administration and the incoming Congress have a real dilemma in front of them. Do they try to impeach and or prosecute Donald Trump or do they try to go on with the business of governing and hoping that none of this continues to rear its ugly head? And there's there's schools of thoughts on all sides that, you know, you you can't allow this to go on without consequence, but also you can't inflame it even further. What What is your reporting telling you about this dilemma that that is being faced in the nation's capital and in capitals all over the country right now? Well, I, I know that senior member Republican leadership reached out to the Biden team as the Democrats started getting serious about impeachment over the last few days and kind of issued a plea. Please, please call it off. I'm worried about personal safety. It's going to further inflame anger and it's dangerous. Not that he doesn't deserve it, Not that, as Chris Christie said on Sunday, if this isn't impeachable, what is? But it doesn't make sense. It's not going to get him out of office any sooner. It certainly puts you on record. Fine. It ultimately could deprive him of the perks of ex-presidency, Secret Service, staff, office space. Fine. But what does it really accomplish? It's tough. It's a tough one. You know, I'd love to know what Biden truly thinks. You know, I, I suspect that Biden would like it to be over. And the idea of starting off and he's facing cabinet confirmations and everything else, not to mention his first bills, you know, another COVID bill, I mean, all the stuff he wants to do. Not to mention just simply saving the country from the scourge of yeah. this virus, which is surging. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, it's one of these tough situations. You totally understand why. You know, now virtually every Democrat is on record uh, favoring impeachment and some Republicans, too. You totally understand why they would want to do it, the rationale behind it. But you got to, you know, they also have to ask themselves, is this really the thing to do right now? I mean, is it is it worth it? And is it, you know, should we move on? It's a tough one. Yeah, it is really tough because what I keep hearing is, you know, Donald Trump has been has done everything he's done throughout his presidency without any consequence. Yep. And now they're saying, well, how can we allow him to potentially hold future office? It's a great one, but you know, but also, I mean, there is consequence now, even even without Congress. Right. I mean, I hate to sound crass, but his brand is toast. I mean, and this is the stuff that really hurts Donald Trump, by the way, probably more than an impeachment when the PGA <laughs> pulls out of the, you know, says they're not going to do their tournament next year at Bedminster. That really gets to him. When when Belichick says, I won't come to accept the Medal of Freedom, the Presidential Medal of Freedom, because you are too toxic. When all the, the these large and respected American companies are saying, you know, we're not going to give any more money to anybody that, you know, supported this effort to overturn the election. I mean, 
He's got fervent supporters out there. He probably always will, but he's done. Yeah. It's hard for him to just rail against big tech now when big banks and the PGA and like you said, you know, his hero, Bill Belichick, won't accept an award from him. Yep. Yep. So, you know, I don't know. It's brutal. So, so there are consequences, even if they're not. Without doubt. Without doubt. You know, you're about to cover the next administration. And what does the Biden administration need to do on day one? I mean, they've got a lot to handle with COVID, with hunger in America, people really struggling. The economy is, you know, sure, the economy is benefiting you know, people who are well-to-do, people who are in the information economy, people who have jobs, they can, you know, easily work from home. But there's a lot of hurt going on in this country. In addition to all the dissension we're seeing, you know, right now politically, there's a lot of ordinary people out there now who, you know, I was talking to Tim Alberta about this on my podcast a couple of weeks ago. There's a lot of people out there who don't care who the president is. They just want to be able to, you know, exist and have better jobs and have better wages and, you know, be able to put food on the table. What is what does Biden need to do to shake some of the the horror off on day one? Well, look, I think that the first thing that, that Biden's got to do is he's got to get the vaccine rollout right. And so much you know, follows from that. I mean, if he can do what he has promised to do and he's already worried that he won't be able to you know, get 100 million vaccines in the first 100 days, yeah. <laughs> a million a day, yeah. you know, that, that, that goes a long way towards dealing with the, with the fundamental health problem and also the economic problem. But how he handles this, I think that the greatest crisis that our country has faced in our lifetime and a crisis that Donald Trump has effectively ignored for the last six months or more. If he can confront and deal with it, a lot else will flow from that. You know, his other, in terms of just pure politics, I think sending a message, you know, reaching out to Republicans, to some of the 74 or 5 million Americans that voted for Donald Trump, that he is going to be what he said he was going to be in his campaign, you know, the president for all Americans. You know, I think that I think that, that the messaging and the way he appeals and the change in tone is also incredibly important given the anger in the country. But none of it matters if he can't get the virus under control. How do you think he reaches out to Republicans in this environment? I mean, President-elect Biden has been, by all accounts, someone who's reached across the aisle his entire career and somebody yep. who's really good and has friends on the other side of the aisle. I mean, for God's sake, his best friend in the Senate was John McCain. His other best friend in the Senate was was Bill Cohen. You know, so two Republicans. I mean, and they're the guys that convinced him to stay in politics after the horrible car crash he experienced, where his wife and infant daughter were killed. What do you see him doing to, to reach across the aisle right away? Well, I think part of it is the rhetoric and the message. And I think he's been really strong on that in the wake of the election and, you know, during the election, but, but, but more importantly, what he has had to say since he was declared the winner. But I come back again to the thing that's going to matter above all and that I think will, will help him in that, which is showing competence and effectiveness in this vaccine rollout and in the way he's handling this epidemic, because that gives him that gives him something to go on. And then he's going to have to, you know, he's going to have to work with with McConnell, which is something I think he can do. They were not close when, you know, in the Senate. That was not one of Biden's true friends, but they did develop a much closer relationship when Biden became vice president. And, you know, McConnell 
felt that he couldn't really deal with Barack Obama, but he could deal with Biden. So a lot of those, you know, White House congressional leadership uh, negotiations were spearheaded by Biden. And I know that McConnell's told people that he always felt that, you know, Biden dealt with him, you know, in, in a straightforward manner, understood what he couldn't deliver, which is very important, you know, in negotiations. You understand what you can get, but you also understand what, you know, the, the, there's a place that you're, who you're negotiating with that cannot go. So, I, you know, I think that that's going to be the key relationship. And I think there's reasons to be optimistic about it. And I understand there's also ample reasons to be pessimistic that Republicans at this point, who took so long and some still haven't, you know, even recognized him as the president-elect, there's reasons to doubt that any of this is really going to be fruitful. But I, I, I'm on the more optimistic side. Final question, John. As the final days of Donald Trump's presidency wind down, are you worried that something else, you know, horrific is going to happen? And or, or do you think he just kind of fades out these last couple of days and finds another platform to, you know, begin his after presidency on where he can set up an alternate universe and and try to you know continue to talk about the disputed election? I read reports that he was you know, railing at House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy about the stolen election still, and McCarthy told him he needed to just stop. Yep. I do certainly hope that we've reached the point where he's going to fade away, but there's nothing guaranteed here. We've got, what, another eight days left here. The thing that I find most frightening is what would happen if you know iran takes a shot at american at an american target in the uh in, in the gulf or in iraq what would happen if the chinese made a move on taiwan what would happen if north korea did something uh, aggressive what would happen if there were a terrorist attack what would ha- i mean all of these things would anybody have any faith and steady leadership out of out of the white house and the commander-in-chief if, if there were truly a crisis yeah, uh, that needed to be handled. So, uh, you know, I know that, you know, Radcliffe and Pompeo and O'Brien took a little picture of the, the three of them sitting there He's saying, we're still here. We're at the, at the controls. Everything's fine. It wasn't exactly the most reassuring <laughs> right. in the world. You know, we got these three dudes. Don't yeah. worry. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. But let's hope for a boring eight days. Okay. Let's just hope for a uh, run of the mill. You know, so cable television keeps him entertained and, and we, we can move on. Maybe he'll watch the NFL playoffs this weekend and just leave it There's at good that. good games, you There's know. really good games, good games, you know. Yeah. Ravens, Browns, come on, man. You can't get yep. any better than yep. that. Yep, good stuff. Jonathan, thank you as always. This is really terrific. And we will talk to you on the other side of this presidency. Great to talk to you. You've been a friend for a long time and it's good to catch up. Take care. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 